in, in our day, there are various responses to the, the rise in the LGBTQ plus movement and agenda. You have some people who would have abandoned Christianity because they believe that it's incompatible with this lifestyle and that's a problem and they choose the lifestyle over Christianity. You have others who say the Bible does not actually condemn uh, same-sex practice, um, at least some kinds of same-sex practice, and so they would be affirming churches. There would be churches that would affirm uh, people living this kind of lifestyle, and sometimes uh, people refer to that as side A Christianity. Those who claim to be Christians and say it's perfectly fine, God actually wants you to express this love that you have for your partner. Then there are other Christians who would say the Bible uh, condemns all manifestations of, of same-sex practice. That group, though, there's a, a section that would say, but the identity or orientation is itself a good gift of God, even if the practice is not. And that group is called Side B Christianity, which sometimes can be confusing if, unless you're understanding the Side A versus Side B. Side A is saying the Bible says it's all good, Side B says, the Bible says some of it's good, but the practice itself is not. And so the Revoice Conference is probably one of the bigger manifestations of this ministry, spiritual friendship. That's on that group of Side B Christianity. Connected with that, there's now a debate about whether or not uh, Christians should claim a same-sex identity. Should I call myself a gay Christian? In the PCA, uh, there's movements to, to try to keep anyone from the position of elder who would identify as, as a gay person. Um, and so that, that's kind of the debate that's going on. A part of that debate is the question of whether or not homosexual desire or same-sex desire is sinful. And that's really where we're going to, to focus in in this workshop. It might be worth pointing out, I think theoretically you could come to a different position on this specific question, is same-sex desire sinful, but not necessarily agree with everything that Side B Christianity is saying and say we need to embrace the identity. Um, it's, a, it's potentially separate, but I think a related question. All right, so with that in mind, let's begin briefly by just thinking about same-sex orientation. I have here a, a quote from the American uh, uh, Psychological Association, not because I think they are necessarily right, but because I think they would represent a, a kind of expert witness in our culture on, on what people mean when they talk about being gay or lesbian, etc. So this is what they say. Sexual orientation refers to an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to men, women, or both sexes. Sexual orientation also refers to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions, related behaviors, and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. Sexual orientation is usually discussed in terms of three categories. Heterosexual, having emotional, romantic, or sexual attractions to the member of the other sex, gay or lesbian, having emotional, romantic, or sexual attractions to members of one's own sex, and bisexual, having emotional, romantic, or sexual attractions to both men and women. People express their sexual orientation through behaviors with others, including such simple actions as holding hands or kissing. The sexual orientation is closely tied to the intimate personal relationships that meet deeply felt needs for love, attachment, and intimacy. In addition to sexual behaviors, these bonds include non-sexual physical affections between partners, shared goals and values, mutual support, and ongoing commitment. Therefore, sexual orientation is not merely a personal characteristic within an individual. Rather, 
One's sexual orientation defines the group of people in which one is likely to find the satisfying and fulfilling romantic relationships that are an essential component of personal identity for many people. And so with that in mind, you have these people inside the Christianity who would say, this is a part of who I am. This is how God has made me. I am gay. I am lesbian. This is my identity. And therefore, I need to not reject that, but to embrace the good aspects of that. So here's some quotes from people with that kind of a statement. Gregory Coles, I began to realize that my sexual orientation was an inextricable part of the bigger story God was telling over my life. My interests, my passions, my abilities, my temperament, my calling, there was no way to sever those things completely from the gay desires and mannerisms and attitudes that had developed alongside them. For the first time in my life, I felt free to celebrate the beautiful mess I had become. Or Eve Tushnet, doubtless, no matter how many models of chaste, same-sex love the church offers, many contemporary gay people will still reject its hard teachings. But it couldn't hurt to try. So often I'm asked that questions that boil down to the angry or anguished plea, is there anything in my love and desire that the Catholic Church can respect? Because she's Catholic, just so you know. I'd be shocked as much as 5% of gay people who grew up Catholic even know that there's precedent for their lives and faithfully Catholic beauty available to them. I'd be shocked if anyone had ever even suggested a vision of a world where God, church, family, and community could celebrate their love while still requiring that this love express itself as chaste friendship or mystical approach to God rather than as gay sex. Or Wesley Hill, one of the, the key leaders of this movement, it seems to me that Christians, like my friend Denny Burke, who criticize the whole behavior orientation distinction, who say that both are equally sinful, equally fallen, broken, corrupt, pick your preferred negative adjective here, and thereby deem the entire experience of being gay as in need of renunciation, may not be considering carefully enough how what we in modernity have chosen to call a homosexual orientation or being gay, how much of it includes much of what scripture and the Christian tradition commend as Christian virtues. When we contemporary folks start talking about a sexual orientation as what causes us to form deep bonds of closeness with other members of our same sex, for example, quite apart from any genital sexual expression of that closeness, we're using an overarching category, being gay or having same-sex attraction, that scripture and the tradition has other language for. Now, uh, Denny Burke and, and Heath Lambert in their book, Transforming Homosexuality, I think helpfully point out there, there's essentially three aspects to sexual identity that's being described here. One is sexual attraction. Uh, and, and you'll see is the APA, it's generally a pattern over time of one's sexual desires. Right? So your desires, sexual desires are inclined towards either people of the same sex, people of other sex, or anyone. Then secondly, emotional and romantic attraction. And thirdly, identity, self-understanding, community. This is the group, this is the people that I share bonds with, this is my community, that kind of an idea. Now we don't have a lot of time here. I'm just going to suggest that if you remove the first of those three, same-sex sexual attraction, that I think there's really not a lot of value at that point in time of talking about an orientation. Because emotional attraction, if I can say it that way, romantic attraction I think gets very blurry because typically romantic attraction is tied in with sexual attraction. So if you're simply saying deep bonds of emotional attraction, I think that's just like normal life. That's, that's 
why David and Jonathan had such a close friendship. And people look at that and say, well, maybe there was something going on. And it's like, no, there wasn't. Because once you remove same-sex attraction, there's nothing wrong with men loving each other and women loving each other as deep friends and, and having a, a real attachment to someone. What, what makes it uniquely homosexual or, or gay is adding the sexual element. So once that's removed, I don't think it really matters. And I might say this later, I'm not sure it's most helpful to define your identity or self-understanding or community uh, apart from Christ as a Christian. And so I, I don't think it's a helpful way to, to, to think about this issue more broadly. Um, but let's begin to narrow down more specifically our question, what about same-sex or homosexual desire? And to do so, I think we need to begin to think about the heart. What causes homosexuality? Again, the American Psychological Association says this. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. Now, I, I wanted to quote that to, to basically say, people who say you're born that way aren't actually basing it on what the current findings would say. You aren't born that way. In the sense of saying, Inevitably, that's how everyone develops these things. Because they're saying there is no genetic like, gene. You do studies of, of identical twins. One's gay, the other's not. It's very common. It's actually more common that way than for both of them to be that way. Which leads some Christians then to say, well, that makes sense because obviously this is the result of your own choices. You chose to be this way. And, and yet, many would say, I, I think is the APA points out, many feel as if there was little choice in it. So was it nature? Was it nurture? Well, let's think about what the Bible generally says about us. And to do that, I think the Bible inevitably points to our hearts. And Proverbs 4.23 points out, as, as Peter Hubbard says in his book, Love and Delight, that our hearts are vulnerable. So we need to keep our heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Inevitably, the, the, the realities that we experience in our life flow from our hearts. And so we need to guard our hearts. Because if we don't, we can potentially find ourselves where we do not want to be. And yet, it also points out, again, in Mark 7, that our hearts are sinful or culpable. That we are uh, to blame for the things that come from our heart. Mark 7, as he was saying, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that, was, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. And so could someone say, I, I've... I've just always felt like I've had these desires and they are sinful. I think at least theoretically the answer is yes. 
Because let's say you struggle with uh, pride. One of the things Jesus lists here. From the time you were little, you found yourself thinking great thoughts about yourself. You found yourself wanting others to pay attention to you. And even now, you at times find pride is just there and you're like, man, I, I'm just a proud person. And, and if I said, well, why'd you choose to be a proud person? You'd say, well, I, I didn't choose to be a proud person. I, I, it's just, it's, I've always been that way. And so the response isn't to say, well, okay, it's not a sin then. The response is to say, no, that defiles you. It's coming from your heart and it defiles you. So with that in mind, let's begin to think specifically uh, about sinful desire or what has historically been called concupiscence. Now, just like I said earlier, there are some who, who argue we should celebrate our, our, our uh, gay identity even as Christians. There are probably even more who would say that same-sex desire is temptation and only becomes sin when it is acted upon. And so here's some, some quotes, a few from Ron Belgao here at the beginning. I believe that gay sex is sinful and that the desire for gay sex, though not itself sinful, is a temptation that cannot be regarded as morally neutral. A traditional Christian sexual ethic distinguishes between two things. First, it teaches that the desire to have sex with others of our own sex is the temptation to sin, which is a result of the fall, but is not in itself sinful. Nor can we necessarily choose who we are attracted to. Second, it teaches that homosexual activity is a sin because we can choose how we act in response to our desires. So what makes something a sin? We choose it. It is important to communicate the church's teaching clearly that te that teaching is that homosexual acts are always contrary to God's plan, and that the desire for such acts is a temptation. Or Wesley Hill, can we think of same-sex desire as no matter for blame? There's nothing wrong with same-sex desire. And yet, at the same time, remain persuaded that its literal physical expression and sexual intimacy is not the true fulfillment God has in mind for our desire. So it's a, good, it's a, it's a perfectly fine desire, it just can't be expressed in this way. That, at least, is what I understand myself to be trying to do. Or Robert Gagnon, and, and, and he's one I would say, I don't think he would affirm all these other things. He actually has probably the best book out there, generally in looking at what the Bible has to say, uh, condemning homosexual practice, and yet he would make this distinction in saying temptation, uh, that, that same-sex desire is not sin. Right, so this is what he says. A homosexual impulse while sinful, cannot take shape as accountable sin in a person's life unless one acquiesces to it. Thus, a reasoned denunciation of homosexual behavior and all other attempts at nurturing and justifying homosexual passions is not and should not be construed as a denunciation of those victimized by homosexual urges. So when we say same-sex behavior is wrong, nurturing and, and defending those behaviors are wrong. We want to make sure we're not telling you you're wrong to have those desires. That's what, that's what Gagnon's saying there, right? Since the aim is to rescue the true self created in God's image for a full life. And then most of the rest of our time, I want to argue the opposite. I want to argue that sinful desires are themselves sinful, whether or not they are voluntary or acted upon. And I want to begin with a couple of passages of Scripture 
that I think are central and have been recognized as central in this discussion. The first is Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so is this voluntary? I'm not choosing it. I'm not wanting it. And yet I'm doing it. And Paul says, but it's not me that's doing it, it's sin that is in me. And that point, that sin that dwells within me, is that concupiscence. I think, you say it this way, it's the flesh. It's our sin nature, or the sin principle. That which remains in us after the, after we have been redeemed, the remnants of the fall in us, that is the sin that dwells within me. Now, you might think Paul's making a distinction and saying, well, then I'm not really responsible, right? It's not me. It's the sin that dwells in me. And yet, if you read through Romans 7, it seems pretty clear he's viewing this as sin and it's something he needs to be delivered from. And so he's not like, hey, this is perfectly fine. It's not me. It's just sin in me. But he is saying there's something in me that's wanting things that I don't want. And so there's this battle that's going on in me. Historically, the Catholic Church has basically said, that's not really sin, though. That is weakness. That is remnants of the fall. But it only becomes sin when you acquiesce to it. When you choose it, when you give in to it, then it becomes sin. And the Reformers historically said the opposite. Now, before we get to that, let's look at one other passage there, Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, because this was another passage that has been heavily pointed to in this discussion historically. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the, the language there, lustful intent, is using the same word in the Septuagint uh, to translate covet a neighbor's wife. And so I, I think Jesus probably is pointing to that idea. That adultery is not just when you act on it, but it's when you covet. When you, when you desire your neighbor's wife, which is what with lustful intent has. It, it's not just saying if you happen to look at a woman, you're sinning. But if when you look at her, you have this desire, then you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so what makes this sin? Is it only sin once it reaches a certain level of intensity? So you look at this woman, and you don't really have strong desires for her, but you have maybe a little bit of desire for her. And so you got to stop yourself before you start to, to get strong desires for her because then you're sinning. And it says, I don't think that at all makes sense of what Jesus is saying here. It's not as though you reach the point of lust once you move from like, well, this was minor desire, but now you've like lust because you've come up here at this level of desire. Or is it because you chose to look at her in this way? And I don't think that's really behind it as well. That, that lustful intent may not even be necessarily the best translation. I think it is, like I said, I think it really is pointing to the idea of, of with lust as opposed to without lust. If 
say it this way, you're, you're looking at someone as a sister in Christ as opposed to a potential sexual satisfier. And I think that what makes it wrong is the fact that it is not your wife. You're coveting your neighbor's wife. If you look at your wife with desire, is that sin? No. If you look at someone else's wife with desire, is it sin? Yes. Because the object, not necessarily because of the intensity of your desire, because you chose it, it is sinful because you are wanting something you should not want. You're desiring something you should not desire. And that makes it sinful. And I think that is the traditional Reformed understanding. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at some quotations that point to this idea, that the desires themselves are sin. Zwingli, what then is the law good for? The answer, according to Romans 3.20, is that one recognizes sin through the law. Therefore, understand it with the following example. You shall covet no one's spouse or possessions. Shows you without doubt that if you covet these things, you sin. And you fancy that the desire would not be sin. For you think that if you were on your guard before the act, you would not have sinned. And his point there is that's how a lot of people think. Boy, I'm glad I didn't act on that desire because then I would have sinned. And he's saying the opposite, right? The desire itself, you already sinned. But see our cunning? We are godly only because of the outward deed, and yet inwardly the heart has already become adulterous, a thief, a usurer, or a robber. For if he were permitted to do it, then he would do it. Now our God is not blind. He sees the heart of people. If God finds the coveting or plotting therein, then the person has already incurred the penalty before God. On the other hand, it is not possible for us to be without temptations and lusts so long as we wear the skin of Adam. And I don't think he's making a distinction at this point in time. We'll come back to this later. I don't think he's saying there are temptations and there are lusts. I think he's saying these kinds of things. Temptations and lusts. Really putting them in the same category in this instance. And we'll come back to that. For the flesh bears its fruit forever. What's the flesh? That, that concupiscence, that sin nature. The law stands firm and does not let itself fall nor bend. You shall covet the goods of no one. And if we cannot be on our own power with the desire, so also are we also transgressors and fallen into the wrath and penalty of God. Martin Luther, from this dogma, the dogma he's talking about here, that man by his free will can do what is right. That is the dogma largely of the Catholic Church. That at some level, our will allows us to either sin or not sin. It follows that they must repent only for actual sins. And we'll see this a couple of times. When you see actual sins, it's not like, well, fake sins and actual sins. It's acted sins. Sins that you have deeds of sin, as opposed to thoughts of sins or desires of sins. They must only repent for actual sins, such as wicked thoughts that are acquiesced in. For wicked emotion, lust, and improper dispositions, according to them, are not sins and for wicked words and deeds which the free will could readily have omitted. And so Luther is pointing out and disagreeing with the idea, it only becomes a sin if you acquiesce to it, if you choose to do it. Martin Bucer. For it is so native to our experience for covetousness to lead us into evil doings, that according to the common verdict, covetousness itself should not be reckoned as a fault in a man, so long as he does not yield to it and purpose to implement it. 
And so it only becomes a sinful desire when you say, I kind of like this desire. Or I'm going to start thinking about how I could carry this desire out. That's what the Catholic Church would be saying. Booster is saying, no. Consequently, the Holy Apostle wrote, I would not have recognized covetousness to be sin if the law had not said you should not covet. Indeed, so justly does the law treat covetousness too as sin that no one who has reflected on how eagerly we ought to be inclined towards righteousness can be in two minds about it. For we should be wholeheartedly on fire for the good that is the will of God. And if a man attains to this, if a man only wants the will of God, no desire for evil will ever steal upon his heart. Every man earnestly cherishes and loves his own life as something good, and therefore no one in his right senses desires what he is fully assured will destroy or maim his life. But if we worship and love God the Creator with the total devotion that is his right, what delight in the things that alienate him from us would ever gain access to our hearts? We would never want anything but God if we had no sin. So evil desire is also sin. And since a person judges the objects of his desire to be of supreme value and is immediately born undeservedly in the direction is even the root of all sins. And that's part of what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do we sin? Because we already wanted it in our heart. Calvin, with these words, specifically the 10th commandment, the Lord curbs, as it were, all our cupidities which go beyond the limit set by charity. This commandment indeed forbids conceiving in the heart all that which the other commandments prohibit committing an act against the rule of love. Hence, this command condemns hatred, envy, ill will, just as murder was condemned above. Lascivious sentiment and inner impurity of heart are here prohibited just as are acts of fornication. Just as before, rapacity and cunning were forbidden, so now is avarice. Whereas before, slander was banned, so now malignity itself is repressed. I should say this now, I forgot to mention this. I found most of these quotes actually from a dissertation that you'll see in the notes from Jared Moore. And so uh, you can look at more of what he has to say on that. Um, just wanted to make sure I, I, I pointed to that and gave him the credit for this work. Calvin, in creating a, a catechism, includes this. Do you mean that the least temptation that enters into the thought of a believer is sin? And so now we're beginning to, to get something we'll see a little bit later. Can temptation be sin? Even though he resists it and does not consent to it? It is certain that all evil thoughts proceed from the infirmity of our flesh, from concupiscence, from that sin nature, even though we do not consent to them. But I say that this commandment speaks of concupiscence which tickles and pierces the heart of man without bringing him to a deliberate purpose. It's, it, it's already sin, even before he decides to do something. You say then, that the evil affections which involve a definite act of will or resolution are already condemned. But now, the Lord requires of us such integrity that no wicked desire may enter our hearts to solicit and incite them to evil. That's right. No wicked desire can ever enter your heart. And when that happens, we are no longer walking in integrity before the Lord. And I'll point this out as well. How does he describe it? Soliciting and inciting them to evil. What does that sound like? Temptation, right? And so it seems as if he's saying these desires, these temptations are sin. Come back to that. In the next quote, he, he mentions Augustine. And, and this is interesting because Augustine, early in his life, was very clear in saying that these sinful desires are not sin. 
They only are sin when you acquiesce to them. As he continued to fight the Pelagians, it seems that towards the end of his life, he maybe took a stronger stance. And so Calvin actually quotes here his stronger stance later in life, but also says, I think Augustine was wrong in his earlier point. And so that's, that's why he says here, between Augustine and us, we can see that there is this difference of opinion. While he concedes that believers, as long as they dwell in mortal bodies, are so bound by inordinate desires that they are unable not to desire inordinately. That, that because of sin, sin is so bound up in us, we inevitably will have wrong desires, sinful desires. Yet he dare not call this disease sin. Content to designate it with the term weakness, he teaches that it becomes sin only when either act or consent follows the conceiving or apprehension of it. That is, when the will yields to the first strong inclination. So it's a weakness. We have this desire. It only becomes sin when we acquiesce to it, when we begin to act on it. We, on the other hand, deem it sin when man is tickled by any desire at all against the law of God. And the reason they use tickle, you'll, you'll see this a few times, is basically like the, the very first like touch, right? The very moment that desire comes there, he's saying it's sin. Indeed, we label sin that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort, that concupiscence, that sin nature in us. We accordingly teach that in the saints, until they are divested of mortal bodies, there is always sin. For in their flesh there resides that depravity of inordinate desiring which contends against righteousness. And Augustine does not always refrain from using the term sin, as when he says, Paul calls by the name sin the source from which all sins rise up into carnal desire. As far as this pertains to the saints, it loses its dominion on earth, the power of sin has been broken, and perishes in heaven, the presence of sin is gone. By these words he admits that insofar as believers are subject to the inordinate desires of the flesh, they are guilty of sin. Charles Hodge. We do attribute moral character to principles which precede all voluntary action and which are entirely independent of the power of the will. So it's not just based upon our will. We hold ourselves responsible not only for the deliberate acts of the will, that is, for acts of deliberate self-determination, which suppose both knowledge and volition, but also for emotional impulsive acts, which precede all deliberation. And not only for such impulsive acts, but also for the principles, dispositions, or eminent states of the mind by which its acts, whether impulsive or deliberate, are determined. When a man is convinced of sin, it is not so much for specific acts of transgression that his conscience condemns him, as for the permanent states of his mind, his selfishness, worldliness, and maliciousness, his ingratitude, unbelief, and hardness of heart, his want of right affections, of love to God, of zeal for the Redeemer, and of benevolence toward men. These are not acts. They are not states of mind under control of the will. And yet, in the judgment of conscience, which we cannot silence or pervert, they constitute our character and our just ground of condemnation. James G. Boyce said, The justified are not declared in Scripture to be free from sin or possessed of holy natures, but are represented as still struggling against sin, and not only sin, which arises from outward temptation, but that proceeding from the motions of sin within. And we'll see something that we point to later, the idea of outward temptations as opposed to the motions of sin from within. Herman Bovink basically is talking about this distinction we've been talking about. Catholics, they said sin has to be voluntary. 
The Reformation spoke out against that, asserting that also the impure thoughts and desires that arose in us prior to and apart from our will are sin. Denny Burke, probably one of the most helpful contemporary articles on this, is an article I put in Jets a few years back. This is what he said there. When a person feels themselves experiencing an attraction or desire toward a person of the same sex, what is their responsibility before God at that point? Is a desire for sexual activity with a person of the same sex a morally benign desire? In the terms that Jesus teaches us, it is always sinful to, to desire something that God forbids. And the very experience of the desire becomes an occasion for repentance. And it is pastoral malpractice to tell someone who is feeling a sexual attraction for a person of the same sex that they need not repent. In the moment, they feel their sexual desire aroused in such a way. In that moment, they must confess the desire is sinful and turn from it. Wayne Grudem. So it's not surprising that not only homosexual conduct, but also homosexual desires are viewed as contrary to God's will. Homosexual desires are regarded as dishonorable passions, and Paul says that homosexual partners are consumed with passion for one another, giving an image of a powerful but destructive inward craving. R. Scott Clark, Clark, every Christian has sins with which he must struggle. Jesus did not call the Christian life a daily crucifixion for no reason. Those tempted by homosexuality are no more exempt than heterosexual sinners from this call to discipleship. Thieves must daily repent of their desire to steal instead of working. Covetors must daily repent of their desire to have what God has not given them. Idolaters must repent of their desire to make a God in their own image. Liars must repent of their desire to control outcomes by twisting the truth. And Mark Snowberger, who I probably would want to clarify, is not in the Reformed tradition, but maybe it's Reformed adjacent, we'll say. <laughs> While it may be possible that persons are born with genetic tendencies toward anger, worry, deception, glutton, envy, homosexuality, adultery, and so forth, this does not mean that they may be excused from the need to mortify these sins. Nor further, may they be content merely to mortify the deed without addressing the disposition. If Matthew 5 is our guide, it's not, is wrong not only to commit murder, but also to be hateful. It is wrong not only to commit adultery, but also to be lustful. It is wrong not only to commit theft, but also to be envious. And if I may extrapolate from this, it is wrong not only to commit homosexual acts, but also to be homosexual. While it is true that it is a greater sin to act on our sinful orientations than it is to simply have them, I would argue that it is wrong even to have such orientations, even if we are born with them, even if we have this sense of, I, I didn't choose these things. We must mortify both the deed and the disposition. Now, as you work through that, one of the questions that I think you're likely to, to have is, well, then is temptation always a sin? Isn't there a distinction between temptation and sin? And to answer that, I want to consider James 1. James 1, verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tried... I am being tried by God. Now, I, I changed the translation there. Right? Because it's the exact same word that was used earlier to say, count it joy when you fall into trials. And here he says, 
When you are tried, don't say I'm being tried by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, actually, I think you probably should change the translation here to tempt. Because I think what we're seeing in James is there are two kinds of trials or two kinds of temptations. One kind of temptation is not sin. There's another kind of temptation that is sin. And that's what he's beginning to discuss in verse 13. When you are experiencing this kind of temptation, don't think this kind of temptation comes from God because God cannot have this kind of temptation. And he does not bring this temptation to anyone. Where does this come from? Verse 13. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his Lord and enticed by his own desire. And so there's desire in us, and this temptation is coming from those desires in us. And so we'll see in a moment, this is what has historically been referred to as temptation from within, as opposed to temptation from without. Temptation from without are, are trials. Temptations from within come from our own desires. Now, he goes on to say in verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, we first need to ask the question, is the desire itself sinful? And then secondly, is this verse telling us that the temptation is not sinful, it only becomes sin at a certain point in time? And, and I think they're really related. And so let's begin by thinking, what does it mean when it says it gives birth to sin? Isn't that then saying you have desires and then you have sin? And, and they're distinct from each other. Well, go back to what we talked about earlier. Luther talking about actual sins. I think that's what James is talking about here. That, that just like temptation can be used to refer to different things based upon context. I think sin can be used to refer to different things based upon context. So Paul in Romans 7 says, sin that dwells in me. What's he talking about there? That your sin nature, the sin principle in you. James gives birth to sin. What's he talking about? Acts of sin. Expressions of sin. I don't think he's saying the desire isn't sinful. I think he actually would say the desire is sinful. And, and the reason is at least twofold. One, he just set apart our desires from God. Right? He, he made sure in verse 13 to say, what we're talking about cannot be true of God. Because God cannot be tempted by evil. Because there's nothing in him that wants evil. There's no desire for evil in God. Is there a desire for evil in us? Yes. What is a desire for evil? An evil desire. Because what makes a desire sinful or not? Whether it's a desire for something that God has said is good, or whether it's a desire for something that God has said is not good. It's object. And so these are themselves sinful desires. Secondly, I think we can make that case. Because what happens if we allow this desire to go on, we will do actual sin. If you have a good desire and you act on that desire, what happens? 
not sin, something good. If this desire inevitably leads to sin, what is it to desire for? It's a desire for sin. And that makes it a sinful, evil desire. Think about even the language that Paul uses. This desire, if allowed to go to term, what will be born? Sin. So, before the child's born, it's not a child? It was sin from the beginning. From the moment it was conceived, it was sin. And so if you allow it to come to term, you will express sin in your life. And then if you allow that sin to continue to live, what will be the end result? Sin, when it's fully grown, will result in death. And so it starts with, you have a sinful desire. If you don't kill it then, what will you have? A sinful act. If you don't kill that sinful act, what will you have? A sinful lifestyle. And what happens to those with sinful lifestyles? They face judgment. Those who live in sin will face death. And so here we see, I think, a helpful point in talking about distinctions between internal temptations, temptations that come from our own sinful desires, and external temptations, temptations from without. So let's look at uh, Calvin's commentary on this, and then what John Owen says, and then try to, to think through practical ramifications of it. Calvin, it seems, however, improper, and not according to the usage of Scripture, to restrict the word sin to outward works, as though indeed lust itself were not a sin, and as though corrupt desires remaining closed up within and suppressed were not so many sins. But as the use of a word is various, there is nothing unreasonable if it be taken here, as in many other places, for actual sins, sins that you act on, sins that, that express. And the papists ignorantly lay hold on this passage, and seek to prove from it that vicious, yea, filthy, wicked, and, and the most abominable lusts are not sins, provided there is no assent. For James does not show when sin begins to be born so as to be sin, and so accounted by God, but when it breaks forth. And that's what he's saying, sin. He's saying when James says it gives birth to sin, he's not saying when it begins to be born, but when it actually comes out. When it's conceived, it's sin. At that point in time, it's only in the state of being a desire. Once it's born, it's now in the state of being an act. That's what James is talking about. John Owen, pointing to this broader idea, not specifically referencing this passage, but I think pointing to this truth. Now, when such a temptation comes... Actually, he is, I think, referring to this passage, if I remember correctly now the context. Now, when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented to. But the very proposal from within... It being the soul's own act is its sin. And so think about temptation from within and without in this way. Temptation from within. I want to, I am greedy. Right? I have desires to, to have money. I have, have covetousness. I want to take something that someone else has. And I'm coveting that. That comes from my sin nature. I look at something and I think, I want that. That's, that's a desire from within, and that's a sinful desire. And now if I act on that desire, I will express that sin. What's a temptation from without? To use the language of Proverbs, come. Let's go lay and wait for people. Someone comes to you and says, hey, let's go do this thing. 
That's a temptation from without. Or, or a temptation from within. I, an image popped into my mind of a scantily clad woman. And, and there's something in me that is like, wow, I, I would want her. That's a temptation from within and is itself sinful. A temptation from without. Hey, you want to go to the strip club with us? Hey, come, come watch this movie. That's a temptation from without. Now, with that in mind, that begins to help us to figure out, so was Jesus tempted? And how does that work if temptation can be sin or not? And the answer, I think, is Jesus only ever faced temptation from without. He never faced temptation from within. So Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now what does that phrase, yet without sin, mean? At a minimum, I think anyone has to recognize it means he did not sin. But I think the author of Hebrews is actually saying he did not have sin in him. And the distinction between the temptations he faced and the temptations that we face are that we do have sin dwelling in us. And so we face temptations that he didn't because God cannot be tempted by evil, but we can. And Jesus was God. And so his temptations were external temptations. So, so think for a moment when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Is bread a good thing? Yeah. Is it wrong to have a desire to eat bread? Not at all. What made it wrong? The manner in which Satan was saying, get the bread in this way. You do something that you're not supposed to do right now. And, and that was the temptation. Not for the object itself, but for the way to get it. And that's true for all of them. Should Jesus desire to be worshipped by all, king, all people? Should he desire a kingdom? Yeah, it's his. God's promised it to him. Should he get it by falling down and worship Satan and having Satan give it to him? No, not at all. Is it a good desire for Jesus to have God demonstrate his care and protection for him? No, that's a good desire. Would it be right to throw himself off the temple to manifest, to allow God to manifest that? No, that would be a wrong way to get there. So the temptations were always from without. And if I can say it this way, I, I think I used to probably wrongly have the impression that when we talk about Jesus overcoming temptation, it was as if there was something in him that was like really fighting it, really fighting it, really fighting it, and finally it was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I don't think that's what happens at all. Because what is that? When, we're, when that's happening in us, it's our flesh warring against our spirit. Jesus had no flesh to war against his spirit. So when Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread, he's not like, oh, I really, really want to, but no, I'm not going to do it. He didn't even want to. He had no desire for it. He didn't want anything that Satan was offering to him. Because if he had wanted it, I think it would have been sin, because to want something that God has said we should not want is a sinful desire. What about in the garden? 
In the garden, Jesus specifically says, you know, not my will, but yours. So he's wanting something, and yet is saying on some level, God's wanting something different. And what's going on here? Well, what's the specific discussion there? It's the cup, right? If it is all possible, let this cup pass from me. So think about it this way. Should Jesus have wanted to have God's wrath put on him? Should Jesus have wanted to be made sin? And in itself, he should not want that. There was nothing wrong with him not wanting that. But what he had to want more was God's plan of salvation. Which is why I don't think it was ever he was wanting something God didn't want. Because he began by saying, submitting to him, and ended as well. And so he wanted what God wanted, while at the same time not wanting evil. Which is really what we should always be doing. We should not want evil things while wanting what God wants. Because I don't think Jesus ever had sinful desires in his temptations and was never inclined toward them. There was no inclination towards these things. He was perfectly righteous in all his desires, thoughts, and actions. So if I can go back then to the discussion about temptation. Temptation from without. Hey, do you want to come with us to to grab this guy's stuff. Hey, do you want to go to the scripture? Do you want to watch this thing? And something is just like, well, I kind of would want to. Then I think we have already begun to sin. But if instead we say, I don't want that at all, then we haven't sinned. Let's say you're driving down the road and there's a billboard of, of a lady who's not, you know, not dressed properly. And you go, oh, oh wait, I, Man, I'm going to turn away because I, I find myself wanting that. Then I'm glad we turned away, but we've already begun to sin. But if instead you turn away and say, I don't want to look at that because I don't even want it, then I think we have overcome temptation from without. There was nothing in us that wanted it. And we turned from it before we wanted it. And then in that way, we have overcome that temptation. <clears throat> now let me just briefly... Uh, highlight the, the idea of change here. Um, because, if I can say it this way, if it is sin, the good news is that's what Jesus came to help us with. So how do we deal with these things? If we're saying the desire itself is sinful, then are we telling people, hey, you know, who you are is wrong and you should just feel terrible about yourself? Well, in one sense, the answer is yes, because that's true of all of us. In another sense, the answer is, well, no, but you need to start dealing with it as sin. And so you need to fight against any kind of temptation by looking to what God has promised and loving him more than anything else that's there. Replacing your inordinate desires with ordinate desires. And as well, that's Ephesians 5, instead of having covetousness, what should you have instead? Thankfulness. Contentment. And so instead of being considered what God has not given you, recognize he has given you everything you need. And so the fact that you cannot have this relationship with this person does not mean that God has withheld any good thing from you. You still have everything you need in Christ. And begin to think of yourself not as who I am in my sinful lusts, 
but who I truly am will only be clear when Jesus comes back in Colossians 3. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is your life, then you will appear with him in glory. That I am not at this point in time ultimately defined by the remainders of my flesh. That's not the most central part of who I am. The most central part of who I am is who I am in Christ. And that will only be fully evident and clear when that remaining part of who I was is removed. I'm a new man. And yes, there is still that remnant. There's still what remains of the flesh. But that is not what's ultimate. What do I do with what remains of the flesh? Well, he goes on Colossians 3 to say, so what do you do? Well, you kill it. You put it to death. Because it doesn't belong here. It's not supposed to be here. And so these kinds of things, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, what do you do? You kill it. Sinclair Ferguson says, What is the killing of sin? It is the constant battle against sin, which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us away from Christ. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. So you say, I have this desire. I don't think it's a good desire. Kill it. And one of the ways you kill it is by instead beginning to put on right desires. And I think it's important to understand Colossians 3 happens within the church. That the way we fight sin is certainly with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are, as God's chosen ones, beginning to try to live out holy lives as God's people and, and replacing sinful desires with good desires. And, and the good news is, because of God's work in us, and that He has broken the power of sin, and He's given us His Spirit, and He's given us His Word, that we can see those sinful desires grow less and less. Will they ever be gone? The answer is, maybe, in this life. One day, for sure. In heaven, all sinful desires will be gone. In this life, Will you ever get to the point in which you no longer have those desires? The answer is, I think it's possible. God does this kind of work in us. And the more that we fight it, at the moment it raises its head, the more likely we are to have it raise its head less and less. But it might be you have to fight that the rest of your life. Because we're all going to have to fight sin the rest of our life in some manifestation. But as we fight it, the Lord can really give us victory. We can really change. We can become more holy. And so what should we do? Well, first of all, we need to make sure as all believers, we need to speak the truth. We need to, to say, yes, this is sin, and yes, there is judgment. And so we should not play with sin. But we also need to speak humble repentance. And this was really helpful for me a few years back. I, Someone pointed out, I think it is good to say, I mean, we're all sinners. But we're not all the same kinds of sinners. Because by God's grace, I'm a repentant sinner. And that's what we need to be. It can't just stop with, well, we're all sinners. But what do we do with our sin? Do we excuse it? Do we minimize it? Do we celebrate it? Or do we turn from it? And one of the 
the, the pushback you'll, you'll see with, with the kind of idea that says the desire itself is sinful is basically saying you're, you're just telling people it's like they're sinning all the time. It's like they're just constantly sinning. And so they're having to like constantly repent. And, and we just, this last Monday, looked back at when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. And what was the very first thesis? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So you're saying we have to repent all the time? Yeah. We have to be killing sin all the time. We have to constantly be repenting. And the more we do it, I think the less we will sin. But we have to be turning from it from the very moment it's there and then finally speak the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are not that way anymore. Why? Because you're washed. You're sanctified. You have been made holy. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so if I could encourage us then in thinking about this, one of the things we need to make sure that, that, that we are, are, are beginning to, to focus on and think about is that we can and should have people in our church who have come out of this kind of sin or are struggling with this kind of sin. Because that's exactly what Paul was saying in the Corinthian church. And, and, and are there more and more people who view themselves as gay or lesbian or are practicing this kind of lifestyle? I think the answer is yes, there are more people doing that, which means there should be more people in our churches that were like that. Now, that does not define them that way now. They are no longer what they were. Yet they still might struggle, just like a thief might continue to, to struggle with covetousness, or, or, or someone who's greedy might continue to, to battle greed. Yes, they're still going to fight. And we'd expect that to be people in our churches. But ultimately, we now recognize we are not what we were. And we are seeking to become what God intends us to be in Jesus Christ.